All right, if you have your Bibles there or your Bible that I gave you open to John chapter 1, we're going to read it in just a moment, but let me just uh, say a couple of things here as we get started. It's a, it was a very common thing and saying in the first century that all roads led to Rome. That was both literal and figurative. Rome was famous for road building, and it allowed them to bring goods and services to the center of the empire, and it allowed that Roman government to send its legions to trouble spots to quickly put down any rebellion. It was also a symbolic uh, situation in Rome because of the powerful influence that they had in the world. It touched things like laws and language and philosophy and economy and much more. So in many ways, Rome really was the center of the world and it had feelers going out everywhere. Many theologians like to point to the book of Romans as the center of theology. They like to say that all roads lead to Romans in the Bible as in the book of Romans in the New Testament. They say that because uh, the Apostle Paul, in a crystal clear and lawyer-like way, built his case for justification by faith apart from personal performance. What an incredible book it is. Now, as we study the book of John, I have a little bit different idea that I want to share with you, and that is this. I believe that the gospel of John is the crossroads of the Scripture. There's not a single word of holy writ in the Bible that is not important. Nothing is insignificant. Uh, Everything is important. However, this book of John oozes with both simple clarity and profound theology, and it announces with just unmistakable clarity that Jesus, the one we worship as the Savior, is God that He came in the flesh to die for our sins. It seems like this to me. It seems like John's gospel is the pinnacle of the mountain and that all scriptures are rising to this book. It's a precious book. I've spent much time in it in preparation and prayer, and I pray that you will richly be blessed by this book. So I want you to stand with me, if you would, please, and we're going to read verses 6 through 13. It's up on the screen. Now, I'm going to read verse number 1, which we touched on last week. You, I would like you to join me and read in a good strong voice verses 6 through 13. It'll be up on the screen when we get there. So let me begin and you join me on verse number 6. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now join me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God." To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That passage of Scripture and those verses that we just read give as clear of a picture of what is necessary to become the child of God of anything you will find at any location in the Scriptures. You're just not going to find it more clearly stated. It says, as many as received Him, as many as believe in Him. To them, He gave the right, the authority. He let them know that they could become children 
of God. Now, I want to just uh, really impress upon your thought this morning something that's just very, very dear to me and very important. We're preaching in the book of John. You cannot open the book of John. If I, if I took a knife and sliced it, it would ooze the gospel at every stage. This is the book of great gospel proclamation in the Scriptures. I've hung some banners on the wall, and we made an announcement that we're in the middle of trying to do our best to find family and find friends for the purpose of gospel conversations. Uh, we want to become like Philip, who found his friend Nathaniel, so that he could invite him into his life, invest in him the time and effort necessary, and include him in gospel life and eventually in the family of God. Then there's family situation over here where we had Andrew who went and found his own family member. The person he loved and cared about was Peter, his brother. And he found him and said, we have found the Christ, the Messiah. And so he invested, he invited and invested and included him into that situation and that process so that he could come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Now, let me just say with all clarity this morning, folks, these are not just banners on the wall to decorate the auditorium. We don't just think up things so that we could just say something that's kind of clever and, you know, start them all with an I and those kind of things so that you can, they're memorable. That, that, that's not what this is about. What I'd like to do is speak to everyone. How many of you know Jesus as your personal Savior this morning? You're a believer. Just raise your hand and say amen. amen. All right. How many of you really want your family and friends to know Jesus as their personal Savior? How many of you really want that? Amen. amen. So what I'm doing is I'm impressing upon you that this is not something that you hope somebody does. This is not something you hope somebody in the church does. You hope that Pastor Phil can do. I don't know your family and friends. And it's, not, it's very unlikely unless you take me to their house, I'm going to get to know them. Now, I'll go with you. But what I want you to understand is these are not just mottos. We're not just trying to cover space on the wall. This isn't, what I'm saying to you this morning is this is life and death, eternity and heaven or hell for some people. And it's very important that we do our best to individually. Pastor Marty started us off. You remember he gave you a little magnet of a thing and he left blanks on there so you could write names of people down you could be praying for? That's on purpose. And then a few weeks later, we gave you that finding friends, finding family, laminated sheet, you know, we gave that to you. The reason is so you remember that and think about it. I want to implore you. You say, why are you saying this this morning? Because it's going to be very difficult to preach a single sermon in the book of John that will not be so full of the gospel. It it's going to be gospel proclamation and appeal for salvation. On and on we're going to go. And how many of you think that's worthwhile? Say amen. Oh, I want to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. Not the person beside you, not your brother, your sister, your mother, your uncle. I'm going to pray for you that you would go out of your way to think about this, to think about the people of your life. We've got plenty of room for people in this auditorium, folks. There's plenty of room at the cross for everybody. Oh, don't we want people to be saved this morning? Then it's going to take people just like it did in the first century. It's going to take people like you and me to take the blinders off, get the nose off the grindstone, and look around. Let's do that. Dear Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today. I thank you for this precious family, this this family of friends we call Grace Church, I thank you for everyone here today. I pray, Father, as we open your precious word and we look at this, this, this incomparable gospel of John, 
I pray, Father, that we would be thrilled with what we see and learn. I pray, Father, that we would be motivated by what we, what we are convinced of. And Lord, I pray today that you would just help as I preach and teach. Bless the preaching and teaching. Bless the hearing. I pray, Father, you would motivate us. Oh, the world is so messed up and so crazy. And we're not going to change it from the top down. We're going to change things one person at a time. Help us to share the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We already talked about the first verse, and I could have stayed with that one verse last week. Didn't really have time to do all that I did do, but I just want you to know that we saw last week that Jesus was presented and represented as the Word. We know and found out and proved from the Scriptures that He was talking about a person. The Word that was in the beginning that was the Creator and Sustainer, this Word is a person. Verses 2 through 5 says it was a He, and it refers to Him as Him. Verse 14 said that this flesh, this Word was made flesh, made carnal, made a man, and He dwelt among us. We learned that Jesus, the Word, was eternally God, equally God, and essentially God, and that the Word was the creator and sustainer of everything. And it brings us to verse number 6. And so we see in verse 6, I got two points and several subpoints. You want to watch them, make a, new, make a new notes in your new journaling Bible there as well. First of all, God sent a man with a message at verse number 6. There was a man sent from God, and his name was John. So we want to meet this man. He is John the Baptist. Now, he is different from John the Apostle. I was asked two or three times this morning by people who were reading ahead, and that's a good idea, by the way. They said, I'm confused. This John the Baptist, is he the author? No. John the Baptist wrote no book, and John the Baptist performed no miracles. You got that? John the Baptist wrote no book. John the Baptist performed no miracles, yet Jesus said of John the Baptist, there was never anyone born of woman that was greater than John the Baptist up to that time. That's an amazing statement because we think people that can give, write books and make big speeches and do miracles, you know, they're really great. Well, God says the one that obeys his will is somebody he really takes note of. And he did. John the Baptist, he was different. Uh, John the Apostle, now he wrote four other New Testament books. But this John, the Baptist, he's a relative of Jesus. That's chapter 1, verse 36. He gave his first witness of Jesus as being the Lord when it was, he was at six months from his conception and still in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth. What a thought that is. Mary, whenever she heard that she was going to be expecting a child and the Holy Spirit came upon her, she went up into the hill country of Ephraim, went to her aunt's house. And when she came, there was Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was already six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And they had even named him John at that point. And when Mary stepped on the property inside her womb, John the Baptist leapt. He was already giving witness. He was the forerunner of the Christ at six months. And so I should say something. What happens at conception is the beginning of a baby, not a mass of flesh. It is so important for us to understand. This John that we're talking about is the last of the Old Testament prophets. 
Yet he was more than a prophet, Jesus said. I'm not going to take time to trace every passage, but John, Jesus said, was the greatest one ever born of a woman up to that point. Now, he was different. John was very different. He was totally unexpected. I doubt that many of you would want to see him in the pulpit of this church doing the preaching from week to week. I would. I'd love it. But I think many of you think he was uncouth. He was different in his personal life. He lived in the wilderness. I mean, he got to a certain age, said goodbye to mom and dad, went and lived in the wilderness and ate anything he could scrounge and wore anything he could find and got his education from God. He dressed in camel hair clothing, tied on with a leather belt. He ate locust and wild honey. Think about that for a moment. So if you met John somewhere and he smiled at you, you might see something that looked like a grasshopper leg in his teeth. He was different. He was different in his place of ministry. He never even went to the temple. You know, when Jesus' brothers were with him and Jesus was doing his miracles, they, before they came to believe in him, they said, Jesus, we don't know what you're doing. All these wonderful works you're doing. Why don't you go down to Jerusalem, go to the temple, present yourself? I mean, that's the happening place. Who's who in Israel? It's all about being in Jerusalem. Jesus, go down there. Jesus finally did go and he cleansed the place. But John never went to the temple. Matter of fact, he went out to the Jordan River. He found a spot and he began to baptize and call people to repentance. And everybody was going to see him down by the river. The temple at that time had become a place of apostasy. They were no longer the representation, the true representation of God Almighty and his word. They were not living in holiness anymore. They, it, was a, it was a place to make money. The priests and the Levites had made a money-making factory out of the place. The Sadducees had made it an arm of the Roman government. And this is what had happened with the temple. So the first time Jesus showed up, you know what he did, don't you? He said, you've taken my father's house and you've turned it into a den of... This is what he said. John didn't even bother going to the temple. Ah, no sense going there. I better preach somewhere else. And so he went down by the riverside. He was identified several times in the New Testament and the Old Testament, in the New Testament specifically as fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy as the forerunner of the Messiah. He was different. He was different in his preaching. He quoted no scholar. He made no reference to people or current affairs. He didn't worry about the homiletical construction of his sermons. He just began and he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, well, that's a strange sermon. Well, not too strange because a few days later, Jesus did the same thing. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this John the Baptist was different. He was bold. He named sin and he named sinners <laughs> like King Herod himself. He called him out for taking Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, took him from him and married her. John the Baptist stood up and said, you ought not do that, it's unlawful. To say that John the Baptist was bold is to understate the fact. Now, let me take a moment and say that there are many that report today to be giving God's message out. There are many with clerical collars that stand behind pulpits with crosses hanging on the front of them in buildings with crosses on the roof and Bibles on display. And they're saying that they are giving God's message. Many are well-spoken, well-educated, very appealing. They speak about God's love and his grace and his mercy and his kindness. And God is just full of love. And he is. And I can boldly say without any apology that God is love. And he loves you today. But why is God, what is it that God's love is overcoming? 
Why do we need grace and mercy in the first place? And forgiveness from what? The cross of Christ was necessary for some reason. And the reason the cross of Christ was necessary is because of sin and rebellion and the love for darkness in the hearts of people. And so we really haven't preached the gospel. You say, well, we ought to just preach love and we ought to preach grace and we ought to preach mercy and we ought to preach kindness and we ought to preach forgiveness. Yes, but for what and from what? We have never preached the gospel at all until we've talked about the great offense of sin. We've not even come close to the gospel until we tell why Jesus needed to go to the cross to die. It's because of our sin. It's because we're sinners. And in order to redeem us and buy us back, there was a price that needed to be paid. John's message of repentance and faith gave evidence that he was indeed a man sent from God. Anybody that fails to preach the whole gospel and doesn't point out that sin is the reason for the cross is not preaching the gospel at all. God looks at the culture through the lens of his word and declares the sinful error and calls for repentance. Now let me see if I can't illustrate this to you. We, we live in a day where people reporting to be speaking for God, speaking his word, standing in pulpits in the front of the cross are doing this. They're taking a set of lenses called the culture whatever the culture does and approves of, and it's the world we live in now, and it's the world of what's happening now, and what is now being approved and what's being promoted, whether it's at an individual level or it's a school level or a cultural level or a Hollywood level or a, even a political level. It's the culture, and what, what is being propagated now as preaching and teaching the Bible is to take the culture and to bring the Bible up to date by interpreting the Bible through the lenses of culture. Whereas what we are called to do, like John the Baptist did when, when the king decided to steal somebody's wife, and that's just emblematic of all kinds of things, but when he did that, he turned it right around and says, no, I'm going to take the word of God, and I'm going to put the culture out there, and I'm going to preach the truth to the culture. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because I am God and I change not, the word of God says. We are to preach the truth. You know the truth is never changing. Truth is always applicable. It is the unchanging word of God to an always changing world. We are to preach the truth. Not let culture decide. Let God's word decide and preach the truth. That's who John was. He was a man sent from God. And he preached the truth. Now I want you to hear his message. What was it? Repent and believe. Back at verse 4 and 5, we saw last time that Jesus is life. Life is in him and he gives life. His life is the light of mankind. That word life is the word zoe in Greek. And uh, it's speaking of spiritual life. And it's not the word also used in the New Testament, which is bios, which has to do with physical life. Zoe, spiritual life. Say that. Zoe, spiritual life. Bios, physical life. Now, watch this. Spiritual life gives birth to physical life. 
The Bible says in the very beginning, it says that the word of God, the word which was God and is God spoke at the beginning. And he says, let there be, what was the first thing created? Light. And Jesus spoke light and life into the deadness of the vast of the vast emptiness of the world, and there was light, and there was life. It's so important to understand that spiritual life gives birth to physical life. Jesus, the Spirit, in the beginning brought about what was physical, and this is what we're talking about here. Life and light are distinguishable, but they're not separable. The life is the light of mankind. So when the word spoke in the beginning, the first thing he said was, let there be light, and Jesus gave light to the universe. So John comes along, John the Baptist, and he's a messenger about the light. Look at verse number six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light. Look at verse eight. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. Verse nine. He was the true light, which gives light to every man who's coming into the world. Light, 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 light. You get the idea. Very important. Light. It's a huge subject in these verses. Light. And so who is John? He came as a witness. He was the messenger. He was not the message. He was the messenger. He was not the message. Second Corinthians chapter 4, he, like Paul, didn't say, I don't preach myself. I preach Christ. I'm preaching the message of the gospel. I'm not preaching and promoting myself. Maybe his manner of dress and his educational system and the, and the grasshopper legs in his teeth all had something to do with that. Interesting. He was the messenger, not the message. Jesus said of John, he was the greatest of all. John said, I must decrease and he must increase. Humility was the hallmark of this man. His message was this. His message was believe the light. He was not a light giver. He was a light reflector. He was not a light giver. He was a light reflector. Now on a clear night when the time is right, you can see a full moon. It is glorious to see. I used to love that about the Andean treks that we would take in the mountains of Peru because we'd get way up on those mountains, it'd be a clear night and the moon would be up there. Man, I mean, it was like, you know, it was like afternoon sun. You could walk around and just, well, we could walk and not fall off the cliff. Boy, you didn't want to fall off on those, off those cliffs. But uh, so here's the thing. You can see the full moon. It is glorious to see. Now, Man stepped on the moon at one point in time, but it did not burn his feet. You say, what, what, how did you get there? What did that, well, just think about it. The moon is a dusty rock that generates no light, no heat, and it has no life. It reflects light and the life-giving rays of something else, the sun. That gaseous, flaming, burning mass of energy in the sky gives warmth, vitamin D, and sends the absolutely necessary rays like to create photosynthesis and many other things to sustain sustain life on the planet. The moon does one thing. It reflects the light of the sun. So this is what John says I am. I am not the light. I'm here to reflect. I'm here to bear witness. I'm here to point to the light. That's all I'm doing. Every time you see the moon at night, it's just letting you remember that the sun's still up there. Because it's just a reflection. This message of the light is crucial. Verse number five says, ends, we, read, we preached it last week, it ends saying that the darkness couldn't overcome it or extinguish it. So I want you to check this out with me this morning, see if I can give you just a little bit of illustration about the importance of light. So uh, get ready, we're going to turn the lights off. Are you ready? All right, lights off. Everybody, lights off, all of them. 
I wish I had something to cover up those little slots in the windows, but it's pretty dark in here. Would you agree? Some of you got your light, your cell phones up. I can see your faces out there. It's kind of cool. Anyway, so I want you to see something. We're in the dark, but what is the one spot you can see in this room right now? You can see the what? Because light overcomes what? Now, this is just one candle. If I had a bunch of candles, they would even be greater. I mean, that's why every member being a witness to the gospel is important because the more candles you've got lit, the better chance the light gets everywhere. But all I want to say is this today, that the darkness cannot overcome the light. And John said, I am not the light, but I came to get, bear witness of the light. Let's turn the lights back on. I hope they come on. There we go. There we go. So there we have the light. So uh, if I blow out the candle and I start moving around in this room, then I'm going to stumble into things. And if I don't move really slowly, I will trip. But if I really get animated and I start running, I'm going to run into something and really hurt myself. Why? Because I don't have any light. So let's think about that for a moment. People in the world who do not have naturally the light of the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart, they run around bumping into stuff, making mistakes, falling in potholes and all kinds of things because they're absent of the light. How many of you made a lot of bad choices before you came to Jesus? Let me show you something. Jesus is the light. When Jesus comes into your life, you can see things better. You can understand things differently. You can handle hurdles and difficulties in life a whole lot better. There's a verse in the Old Testament. It's a wonderful verse. I think it's Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and it is a light unto my path. He said, well, it's a lamp and a light. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a light for the pathway. It shows me. It shines further out. I can see the way that I'm supposed to go. But it's also a lamp to my feet so that I can see the pothole that I'm fixing to fall into. God has provided something for us. He's provided his word. It shines so that I can see where I'm going, what I might run into, and it shows the potholes. And so we need, we need the lamp, we need the light. Guess who the light is? Jesus is the light. Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So understand the significance of this and the name I said it and read it a moment ago. It was light, 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 light. That's all in this first section here in chapter 1. The way Jesus is named here, the light, always points to his identity. And the name of Jesus declares him. So I'm going to dance through chapter 1. You've got the references on your sheet. You just need to fill out the blanks. The Bible says he is the word. He is all that may be known or said about God. He, is, he was in the beginning and was the beginner of the beginning. He was before creation, and he is the creator of creation. Then we just studied it just now. He is the light. That's verses 4 through 13. The light refers to the truth and darkness to falsehood. The light refers to holiness and darkness to sin and evil. Satan's kingdom is the domain of darkness, but Jesus is the source of light and the light that shines in darkness of the lost world. So you got these two kingdoms. You got the kingdom of darkness. Guess who his guess who its leader is? The kingdom of darkness is headed by Satan. And then there's the kingdom of light, which is in the person of and by the work of Jesus Christ himself. He is the light. Here's something else. He is the son of God. 
verses 15 to 18 and 30 to 34, which means he's of the same essence and he's hence equally, he is equally and eternally God. He is the Christ. Verse 19 to 28, this is all John chapter 1. He is the Christ. Jesus claimed it time and again in the Gospels and when he spoke to the woman at the well in John 4, he says, when she says, well, look, we know when the Messiah comes, he's going to put everything right. And he said, I who speak to you am he. I'm he, I'm the Christ, I'm Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. That's chapter 1, verse 29, 35 to 36. At the time of the Passover, in the first century, at the time of the Passover on Thursday evening, when Jesus ate with his disciples, there were tens of thousands of lambs bleeding in anticipation of their slaughter for the sacrifice of every household because that's what was required in the law of Moses. They had to each household or a head of a household had to slaughter a perfect and sinless lamb and they had to hold it for, had to hold it for 14 days. And so these little lambs were there and as the day approaches, you can understand the anticipation and the bleeding of the lambs was there on that Thursday night. Night, all of those families have been tying their sin and their deliverance to the shedding of the blood of an innocent lamb for millennia, going all the way back to the time of Moses and the law. They had been shedding of lamb, putting the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel in anticipation of the ultimate lamb. Well, while those real literal lambs were bleeding, waiting for their throats to be slit, the Lamb of God was sitting at a table with 11 men once the traitor had left and sharing a meal, but the Lamb of God was in town and he was going to put an end to all of those animal sacrifices. All of them pointed to the Lamb of God. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 9 says that Jesus made that sacrifice once for all. The Lamb of God. He's the King of Israel. These names mean something. Verse 43 to 49 the Jews all wanted a king. They wanted to throw off Rome, retake the, their position in the world. And with this miracle-working king who could, you know, turn a sack lunch into a feast and all the things. I mean, with this king, inconquerable. Boy, we're going to take him and we're going to make him king. They wanted to take him king by, make him king by force, John 6, 15. But the kingdom he came to establish was first an internal kingdom of the heart. Receive me, he said. He is the son of man, verse 50 and 51. Like Daniel said in chapter 7, 13 to 14, this one would be a son of man. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, he was one formed and fashioned as a man. He would come to the ancient of days. He would receive the everlasting kingdom. Luke's gospel is dedicated to presenting the divine son of God as also the son of man, human in every way except one. Human in every way except one. He did not ever sin. All of the names attributed to Jesus in chapter 1 point to his identity. He is God. He is man. He is the God-man who came to take away our sin by dying in our place. I told you the crossroads in John are amazing. Point two, and finally, the message always elicits a response. Always. Verse 9 to 13, I need to read it. This that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God, 
to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And folks, write this down on your sheet or on your little book that you've got, your little journal. There is no such thing as neutrality concerning the gospel, concerning the person of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as not taking a stand, not taking a side. There's no such thing. You say, what in the world do you mean? Well, this is so interesting. Everyone responds to the light that they're given. I named this initial series in chapter 1, Who is Jesus? Well, either a person remains in their state of unbelief. Now, you're going to say, you're going you're, you're to use that word remain. I, I need to understand that. Either a person remains in their state of unbelief or they hear the message, see the light, and they receive the life that Jesus offers, but there is no neutrality. I always hear people say, I have not decided about whether, I mean, I've witnessed to people and shared Christ many times, and they'll say something like this. Well, I, I just need to contemplate that and think about that. I haven't decided whether or not I want to receive Jesus or not, so I guess I'm just kind of in limbo. No, there's no such place as limbo. Because you're either remaining in unbelief or you're stepping into the light and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are natural-born sinners. Let me say that again. We are natural-born sinners. Every single one of us is a natural-born sinner. You say, wow, that is just really tough. I'm, you know, I don't know what to think about that. Well, we are born into sin. Adam was the first sinner along with his wife Eve, and they passed sin along to us. And the Bible says in Romans 5, 12, sin entered the world through Adam, and from Adam death was passed to all people because all have sinned. Um, when people say, I've not decided about whether I want to receive Jesus or not, I would just simply say, of course you have, because we're natural born sinners. We live in and love the darkness of sin. Now, we're going to get to that in a few weeks. Why do more people not respond to the gospel of Christ and get saved when they hear the gospel? And it's a very simple answer, because they live in and they love the darkness. We're already in the dark, but we have to step into the light. Listen to John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. Let me stop. How many of you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Raise your hand and say amen. amen. All right. Well, the Bible says he who believes in him is, present tense, not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Condemned when? Already. Well, I just hadn't made a decision. Yes, you have. You were born in a decision. Because we're sinners by birth. We're sinners by preference. We're sinners by practice. Now look, folks. Ducks do not become ducks when they start quacking. Dogs do not become dogs when they start barking. And people do not become sinners when they begin to show evidence of their natural-born internal predisposition inherited from Adam, which is in sin, the Bible says, David himself, my mother conceived me. I am a sinner from birth. It only takes a little while for me to show that I'm a sinner by my actions and my attitudes. How many of you 
have noticed that little babies do not have to be taught to lie or to be selfish. What's one of the first words every kid learns? Mine! Mine, 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 mine! Some people reject the light and they remain in unbelief. You say, you're heavy on that word remain. Yes. I mean, you don't have to make a decision to be lost. You understand what I'm saying? You do not have to make a decision to be in the dark. You do not have to make a decision to be a sinner. You don't have to say, well, you know, if it's Jesus or staying in my sin, well, I guess, mm -hmm, let me think about it. No, you remain in sin or you step in the light. That's why it's called the light. Some reject the light and they remain in unbelief. Verse 9, the true light has appeared to all. Not only does the world have the light of creation to give witness, it has the true light, verse 4 and 5, that was coming into the world. Look at verse number 9. Oh, it's beautiful. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. We have the witness of nature, yes, but we have the witness of the true life. Everyone has the light. Folks, people do not reject Jesus for lack of light. They reject reject him for lack of sight and because they love the darkness. And I want the light. John 3, 19 to 20. Verse 10, he made the world, but the world didn't recognize him. He put it all together, put it in motion, didn't recognize him. Verse 11, he came to his own, the Jews, but they did not receive him. So what's the deal there? Well, he came to his own. The Jews. Why are they significant? Well, these are the Jews. They are descended from one man, Abraham. They became a nation. God blessed them immensely, and he took them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea in a miraculous form, and God destroyed their tormentors, and they went out into the desert, and they were fed miraculously, and they got water out of the rock, and they had manna fall out of the heaven, and they saw incredible things, and God fed them, and their shoes didn't wear out, and their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years, and then God gave them a He did so many things for them. They had the angels ministry, and they had Mount Sinai, and they had the law, and they had everything. They were blessed beyond measure, but they also had the temple and they also had the right to run the place and they loved the temple and they loved running it and they loved their religion and they loved their power and they loved the money they were making what was it Jesus overthrew at the temple when he first showed up the very first time he overthrew the tables of the what changers the money changers why because it had become a money-making organization in a business and the house of prayer didn't even exist They wanted the vine and the vineyards, the grapes and the wine, not the Lord. The priests, the Levites, and the rulers of the people, they wanted the temple, the priesthood. They wanted control over the masses. They wanted an earthly inheritance, and they wanted power right here and right now. So when the Son of God came, they killed him so they could keep what he gave them. They worshiped and loved the creation more than the Now, let's not point fingers and make accusations. What? 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 Don't point fingers. Don't make accusations because I just got a question for you. What do we want? Do we want the king and his administration, his love, and do we want to be loyal to him or do we just want his provisions? Do we want the Lord or do we want his fish and bread? Pastor, what does it mean to receive him? It means to believe in him. This idea of rejection of Jesus is expanded and exemplified throughout John's gospel. And I just got to say to you, it's terrible to reject the Savior, but that's what they did. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe, John five thirty eight. 
I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me, John 5, 43. I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe, John 6, 36. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me, John 8, 45. They didn't believe, they didn't believe, they didn't believe. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. Some just flat out reject the gospel. They got other ideas. Some receive the light. They believe. Verse 12. Look at verse number 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power or right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. I've been told all my life, Pastor, it just can't be that easy. It just, that's just too easy. That's just easy believing. Just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, <laughs> The Bible says that over and over, what, what, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, that doesn't just mean believe he exists. That means put all your trust and hopes in him. So believe on the Lord Jesus. But let me go back to that easy thing. There's not an easy thing about it. So what do you mean? Well, the Holy Trinity planned a way for sinners to be redeemed. It was planned in eternity, but it was worked out in time. So after the fall of man, a man was chosen, Abraham, who became a nation. A tribe was chosen, Judah. And a family was chosen, David's. And a time was chosen, the Roman rule and relative peace. A virgin was chosen, Mary. A place was chosen, Bethlehem. An altar was chosen, the cross. Evil men were chosen, the Jewish leaders and Judas. And the sacrifice was made to pay for our sins and all by the sovereign design and performance of God himself and the predetermined purpose of God. You see, there was nothing easy about it except one thing. That is, we must put down our pride and our own abilities and receive humbly the gift of God, which is eternal life. Folks, let me just share this with you. We are not God's children by natural birth. I hear that all the time. Well, all of God's creatures and all of his children. No, no, no. It's, there's two families. There's the, there's the family of darkness and there's the family of light. We're not God's children by natural birth. We are not all God's children simply because we are children of Adam's race. We're made God's children by receiving the gift of his son in faith. We receive him by believing in his name, his authority, believing that he died for us. We are born in his family by his will and not by our efforts. All oh, these sweet verses of Scripture, let them ring through your hearts. Whoever believes, in, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He who believes in the son has eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. This is the will of the father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And that's just a snippet of the book of John. I haven't even gone all the way through. I'm just telling you that here's the promise of God to everyone who believes not death and destruction and damnation, but eternal 
full life. This morning I announced to you that Pastor Paul and Jim Crawford have exited this world. They've taken their last breath, taken their last step. They've done the last thing. Their bodies were broken. They were in sickness. They were not in health. They could not continue. But they're fully healthy, totally revived, and they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's so important. What is God's promise? Eternal life to everyone who believes. You say, Pastor, it just can't be that simple. Well, as long as you're in the performance mode, you'll never be saved. John declared its purpose at the beginning. And John, when we read it at the beginning in 2031, I've recorded these things and shown these signs so that believing you can have life in his name. Verse number seven, he said the same thing. He came bearing witness of the light that all through him might believe. Everyone responds in one of two ways to the gospel. Either we remain in unbelief or we believe and are saved. I'll finish with this. No one will ever be able to blame God for being lost. No one will ever be able to blame God for being lost. And no one will ever be able to take credit for being saved. It is a gift that you receive by grace through faith. Have you believed?